0: at the Boat Talk Foliage Cruise. In early October, all the broadleaf trees will be spruced up in their autumn colors, the water will be still warm, and the Boat Talk guys will be falling into their usual routine of mindless banter for those three hours of scenic beauty and great fun on the water. The cruise will be aboard the good ship Sea Princess again, leaving from the Northeast Harbor Town Dock. Great thanks to Sea Princess Cruises for donating their boat that Giffy Full designed and has been a pleasure ride for the previous Boat Talk Cruises. It's BYOB, and you can bring some munchies to share. Tickets are $15 each with children under 12 free. Bring your camera, even the in-laws. We'll all have a great time looking at the scenery and the great fall foliage. Seating is limited, and the Boat Talk Cruises sell out. So get your tickets now so you won't be leafed behind. Call Chris during business hours at 469-6600.
1: Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org.
2: It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to show what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. When plants and ants from one part of the world find ways to make a living in another part of the world, we sometimes label them invasive species. Some of those may have long-term negative effects on native species, on natural habitat, and human enjoyment of lakes and land. So today, we're going to talk about invasive species, see how they establish themselves, and some of the common sense ways to prevent their spread or to help us adapt to their presence with examples from plants on dry land, freshwater, and a look at those pesky European red ants. And I'm so glad to have in the studio with me my colleague Lois Berg-Stack of University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Welcome to you, Lois.
3: Thank you, Ron. It's good to be here.
1: I'll ask you a little bit about your own background in a minute, but I also want to welcome Roberta Hill. Roberta is um, with us by phone, and she's with the Maine Volunteer Lakes Monitoring Program, and I think we're reaching you in southern Maine this morning. Roberta, how are you?
2: You are. I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
1: Great, Robert. To start with you, uh, give us a little bit of background on yourself and and uh, um, you know the main Volunteer Lakes Monitoring Program.
2: Well, um, the main Volunteer Lake Monitoring Program is the oldest and the largest citizen-based uh, monitoring lake monitoring program in the nation, and we've been around for nearly forty years and um, about. Uh, well, in 2003, it's about eight years now, the VLMP created what we call the Center for Invasive Aquatic Plants to focus attention uh, on this newer threat to Maine lakes and ponds. Originally, the focus was on water quality issues, which have not gone away, and we have many volunteers that are working on that issue, but uh, we needed to also expand our mission to include uh, work uh, f- to help pr- protect lakes from this newer threat. And uh, so my position primarily is, um, I'm the program director for the um, Center for Invasive Aquatic Plants, and I run I run that show.
1: Mm. And how did you get interested? Did you grow up on a lake?
2: I did not. Um, I grew up on uh, the Pacific Ocean, uh-huh. and uh, my earliest. Uh, memories of you know kind of environmental awareness came there really, and uh, but I've always been very very interested in the environment and outdoors, and I wanted to do something here in Maine uh, that would be of benefit to Maine's environment, and I was very fortunate to to link up in this field, and um, it's a it's a good field. There's a, a very a lot of commitment out there across the state help protect Maine's lakes. They're extremely important they're to our way of life, to our economy. Uh, they're just our jewels. And so uh, there really is a lot of strong passion for lakes. And so it was very I was very fortunate to link into
1: that. Great. Well, we'll learn more about um, aquatic invasives in a few minutes. Right. But uh, we'll turn to Lois uh, Stack. Um, Lois, how did you get interested in, in your career um, with Cooperative Extension in uh, uh, your work?
3: Well, I've I've really always been interested in plants and I studied horticulture in college and came to University of Maine Cooperative Extension to work with Maine's green industry. So I work with nurseries, garden centers, Um, greenhouses, landscapers, arborists, landscape architects, florists, very broad group of people, and also with home gardeners. And since I work with so many people on so many different issues, uh, pest management, plant selection, good landscape design, crop production, etc., I see issues from lots of Different directions, and I try to find projects that will be of interest to more than one of my client groups. So over the years, I've done a number of things. That um, oh, for example, for a while, we for about ten years, I evaluated shrub roses for hardiness, and that was a good project because home gardeners love roses. It's a crop that nurseries grow. It's a crop that garden centers sell. So it was a good project that fit the needs of a lot of clients. And other projects and issues have emerged over the years. In the last, oh, five or six years, one of the major focuses has been invasive species. And particularly, I look at invasive terrestrial plants, the invasive plants that Um, take over sections of our wild areas and are also weeds in our landscapes.
1: So it sounds like in your work you do or connect with research and then take the results of that research into the field in different ways with different client groups.
3: Exactly. And as you know, the, the beauty of Cooperative Extension is that we're able to do research and interpret research and take the findings to our clients. And our clients often ask these great questions that in turn become research questions. So it's really
1: a good circle. Great I, uh, we host um, talk of the towns, but we hardly ever talk about the work of extension in that in that way. That's a very concise mm-hmm. way to put it. Um, help us understand what invasives are how do how do we um, um, define invasive species, starting with the plant, the terrestrial plants?
3: That's a wonderful question because it's difficult to talk about anything without a common definition. and I'm not sure there is a good common definition that everyone would agree with. But let me start with what is a weed. Mm. A weed is a plant that's growing in a place where we don't want it. So we might consider an oak tree that comes up in the middle of our vegetable garden. Although we love oak trees, we would probably call that plant a weed. And there are some weeds that, specific plants, that we would probably all agree are weeds. Things like dandelions and quack grass and some of them, Escape from our gardens and yards and become weedy and problematic in other ways in natural areas. And that's where the idea of invasive species comes in. So I think a definition that most of us could agree on is that an invasive plant is a plant that comes from another place. So it's not native to Maine. It has arrived here in some way, maybe as a garden plant, maybe as a crop plant, maybe as a a seed in something else that happened to grow, maybe in in uh, shipping materials, et cetera, that has the ability to propagate with a, at a very high level. For example, purple loosestrife can produce over two million seeds in a single season. So that's a pretty high rate of propagation. That's one plant. That's one plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, Um, that has the ability to not only seed in an area but to jump space. Perhaps those seeds are carried by water or by birds or or by artillery equipment that can establish in natural areas and, in addition to all of those things, that in some way changes negatively the native environment. Perhaps that plant outcompetes another plant that's native. Perhaps it provides less than ideal food for a forager. Maybe the fruits are not as, as nutritious for birds as a native species. Um, maybe it provides so much shade that another plant can't grow. In some way, it disrupts the system in a negative way. Mm.
1: And Roberta, you're still there um, with yes. us by phone. How would you uh, define it in the aquatic world? Um, are there some similarities with how you would define an uh, an aquatic invasive?
2: Many similarities. really, it's it's pretty much the same issue. These plants are very well adapted. Well, many of our native aquatic plants are very well adapted. They're strong competitors, and there they share common characteristics with many of our native plants. Really, the uh, big difference between what we call an invasive species is that it is from away. And uh, in its native habitat, it has all of those things that Lewis was talking about. It, it has um, herbivores that feed upon it. It might have diseases that help to keep it in check. Uh, it has uh, competitors that do help to keep its numbers in check. So it stays in balance in its native ecosystem. Um brought to this new place. It doesn't bring all of its uh, checks and balances along. And so then it is free to propagate uh, without limit. And that is what starts tipping the balance in favor of the uh, invader, starts creating monocultures where we once had great plant diversity, and um, it starts affecting the entire ecosystem, so I, th- I think throwing the balance of the ecosystem out as opposed to just being a nuisance. many people uh, who get plants stuck in their uh, uh, props of their boats or uh, you know might have plants growing along their shoreline might consider a native plant to be a nuisance not wanted there, um, the way that Lois described a weed in the garden, but Really, uh, these plants are part of the native ecosystem. They're incredibly important to all aspects of uh, lake health. And uh, so they, they belong there, uh, even though they may be a nuisance. Uh, these invasive plants, they not only are a nuisance, but they can throw the entire ecosystem out of balance.
1: Mm. Lois, that, that makes sense to you as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Good
2: description, Roberta.
3: Great.
1: Great. Well, this is a call-in show, and, and uh, someone has taken advantage of that, and they've uh, called in. They've called 1-866-625-9378 here on Talk of the Towns as we talk about Maine's invasive species. We'll be uh, later talking about ants as well. Um, Ellie Groden from the University of Maine will join us by phone around 1030. Uh, in the studio with us, we have Lois Berg-Stack um, of the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, and by phone, Roberta Hill, of the Maine Volunteer Lakes Monitoring Program, but let's take that call and see what our question is. Go ahead, please.
4: Hi. Um, I'm Jay from Sedgwick. I've got a question about our beloved lupins here, uh, which some people uh, describe as an invasive species because it wasn't always here in Maine. Uh, I'm from Minnesota originally, and uh, there are lupins in northern Minnesota. but. Uh, I'm just wondering if uh, the, the, the reason for my question is um, a couple of my sisters have said you've got all those lupins. Why don't you send me some lupin seeds? I'd oh. like lupins there. <laughs> and I thought, woo, I don't know about this. Am I am I committing some sort of uh, biological crime by introducing <laughs> something like that? You know, in a place where they don't belong it's not in a part of Minnesota where they where they are native like up on Lake Superior shore. So there's 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 that question. The other question deals with milfoil. and I will say that uh, coming from the land of lakes there there was a time maybe 30 years ago when people thought well this milfoil, this Eurasian milfoil is not such a big deal I and mean, we really don't have to be that concerned about it and besides it's pretty. So let's just let it let it be. But it was a disaster and it took uh, it took 20 years to uh, to, uh, to cut it back. So anyway, there's two questions for Great. you, and I'll two hang ca- up and listen. Thanks.
1: Thanks so much for your call, Jay. And two questions, and probably two guests, I mean, two um, folks in the studio who can answer that. So, um, Lois, I know that you've um, dealt with the question of lupins before. Why don't you give us a, a, a kind of a description of, of how that thing um, kind of develops?
3: Well... Maine once did have a native lupin, and it is now gone from the state. We don't have any of our natural spe- natural species of lupin left. But for a very long time, well over a hundred years, people have planted lupin hybrids in their gardens, and over the years, those lupins, which are native to Europe, um, have escaped from our gardens and naturalized along the roads. So now there's this question: What's the difference between naturalized and invasive? A naturalized plant is a plant that has has perhaps escaped from cultivation but it doesn't seem to be disrupting the system. It's just there and it's become part of the mix. And for many years that's how lupin was viewed and it is still I think we're in a transition period with that particular group of plants because there are still biologists who say, well, you know, lupin is a plant that is generally found along roadsides um, and those grassy slopes along our roadsides are not exactly natural areas. They're planted and mowed and maintained just like any other landscape. Um, however, I think we're in a transition with that plant. I go camping on Lake Aziskahas, which is not exactly a natural lake. That's a dammed river. But um, it's a very natural area, and starting two years ago, I started to see these hybrid lupins next to my campsite. So it is starting to get out uh, away from our roadsides and perhaps invade natural areas. That's the it's it's a difficult question because I think we are in a transition period of that plant. And with every species, research has to be done. We need to look at whether the plant is causing damage. Sometimes that can take a very long time to assess. Um, And we are also in a time when our climate is changing, and that's accelerating the invasiveness of some species. So I'm going to sit on the fence on this one because um, I don't truly know the answer. I am hearing more biologists say, yes, lupins are an invasive species. Um, and it should be controlled.
1: Mm. And what was our native lupin like? Do you have a, a recollection, not personally, but do you, have you studied l- native lupins? What were they like?
3: Well, our native lupin is extirpated or gone from main natural areas, but it's not extinct. It still exists in many other states. It looks quite similar to the lupin that we see along our roadsides. It looks uh, but it's smaller and less showy. And that, I think, is an interesting point because that's why many, Uh, exotic plants are brought to a new area because they're a little bit more showy than the native. A a good example of that is the lupin. Another one is the Asiatic bittersweet. We have a native American bittersweet, but it isn't anywhere near as showy. Um, so that is a, an interesting issue,
1: I mm. think. Let's come back to the, the, that role and especially the, the role of, of individual um, landowners as they try to kind of dress up their land. We'll come back to that question, but first I want to come back to Roberta Hill of the Maine Volunteer Lakes Monitoring Program and, and uh, um, respond, ask her to respond to the question of milfoil. Um, again, the well, folks in the, in, the, in the Midwest thought, well, it wasn't anything to worry about, and then they found it was.
2: Right. Well, Eurasian milfoil has become one of the worst invaders uh, in, in terms of invasive aquatic plants uh, in the country. And really, I think now all, all but two states have uh, reported infestations of Eurasian milfoil, and many of those states are really, as the caller said, you know, really battling hard to even just keep it in some kind of check. We have two uh, in, infestations of Eurasian milfoil, here in Maine. um, And both of those, in both cases, the Maine DEP, the Department of Environmental Protection, has taken a very fast and hard line on trying to uh, nip those infestations in the bud, prevent them from spreading to other lakes, and get rid of them as quickly as possible. And they're Making good progress, I think, on both fronts, and uh, we might even see some eradication of those two uh, infestations somewhere down the line. Um, we, it just, I'd like to go back to just a couple of things. One, uh, the question about you know just sending seeds out mm-hmm. from where you are to another place. We've we've learned a lot over the last 20 years about how invasives move around. All the many vectors for not only terrestrial invaders but aquatic invaders you know basically anything that you put into one water body and take out and put them into another water body a pair of hip waders a you know bait bucket a a boat trailer anything like that is a potential vector for an invader some of the invaders you can see with your eyes like a sprig of Eurasian milfoil others are virtually invisible to the uh, human eye, such as a zebra mussel villager. So the idea of kind of moving biological material or even other things from one place to another always carries, now we know, this risk of moving invasive species around. You know, we're now becoming aware that firewood brought in from other states is a great uh, potential hazard to our uh, forests here in Maine because it could harbor invasive species. So. Um, Those kinds of questions about whether or not you should send something, you know, uh, just one more example. Hydrilla, again, a very serious invasive aquatic plant. Um, There's infestations in states such as Washington that are thought to have started from somebody ordering a uh, water lily, a harmless, kind of benign uh, plant to put into their uh, cove along their shore, and that water lily wasn't a problem at all, but riding along on the water lily unknown uh, to the folks who bought it was this little sprig of hydrilla. And the hydrilla dropped in and got, uh, the plants got started, and an enormous, um, kind of impossible-to-control uh, infestation resulted. So, again, I just would say as kind of a general sum to all of us, we need to be really aware of moving material from one place to another.
1: Mm. That's that's a great uh, kind of caution, and so th- I think the the caller can take um, counsel from from that caution. I want to stay with you, um, Roberta, for a few minutes because we're going to um, uh, let you go at uh, around ten thirty and and uh, bring in Ellie Groden. But mm-hmm. um, t- talk a little bit about um, some of the impacts that. Um, um, uh, invasive aquatics could have on lakes and uh, ponds in Maine and what your uh, program is is doing about it, the, the monitoring efforts that you're doing um, to, to uh, um, first alert people that that might be happening and, and uh, then to deal with it if it does.
2: Great. Um, great questions. Thanks for an- asking that. First of all, uh, the impacts we already discussed you know this kind of ecological impact of throwing the uh system out of balance and creating monoculture where we had diversity and as Lois mentioned, you know some plants are not as appealing to our native plant, uh species of animal and uh you know the um smaller um, uh critters that are eaten by fish and so on so uh, those are all the ecological impacts, and they're numerous, and they're very, very problematic. But in addition, uh, you know, as I said earlier, our lakes are an incredible, important part of Maine's economy. They generate billions of dollars annually in uh, economic activity to our state. So all of that becomes at risk as lakes become infested, economic activity, it's very well-known uh, state. Is, is curbed. Uh, recreational activity, uh, the desire for the properties, uh, shorefront properties, so property values. Uh, begin to go down, and all kinds of uh, economic slowdown can occur once a lake becomes infested. Not to mention the fact that the battle to try to regain some semblance of a a, a natural ecosystem, that battle can be extremely costly for uh, communities and for states and so on. So there's that economic impact, and as I mentioned earlier, the, the recreational in fact, lakes are really important to Mainers and people who visit Maine, and uh, that also can be dramatically affected. So um, what we're doing is basically first trying to raise awareness. We, uh, when we created the center, we created it to uh, be a, a strong uh, partner with the, Maine, the state of Maine. In its efforts, uh, the state of Maine created an invasive species action plan, and the action plan kind of covers three uh, or has three strategies, primary strategies. The first, foremost, prevention. In the state of Maine, we know of, and we're not sure, You know, certainly not all lakes have been checked for invasive species, but we know of um, 34 infested water bodies. That's far less than 1% of all of our water bodies. Uh, so we have this, you know, other states in the country are lucky if they can say less than 1% are not, infested with uh, invasive species. So here in Maine, we have this great, unique opportunity to practice prevention on a widespread scale and really make a difference with that. So prevention is a very important thing, and awareness is what leads to prevention. As I mentioned earlier, anything you put into the water is a potential vector. So when you remove your uh, boat from the water. You should check it very carefully for any debris of any kind because some of it might be recognizable. Some of it might be not recognizable like a tiny seed. So everything comes off. You get it home, You know, take it to a high-pressure washing station, just a basic car wash and hose it off. Let it dry for a few days before you put it into another water body. That kind of just um, you know, um, responsible care is the kind of thing that's going to help prevent spread of these organisms from one water body to the next. The second thing, and this is what we have at the Volunteer Lake Monitoring Program, we're kind of in a very good position to d- jump in on, and that is uh, the early detection effort because uh, we very much believe that uh, laypersons can be uh, trained to uh, conduct uh, monitoring uh, on a equivalent scale to uh, professionals. And so we're training people across the state to uh, screen, uh, s- conduct what we call invasive aquatic plant screening surveys on their favorite lake and uh, or pond or stream. And um, we've now trained over 2,400 uh, people across the state of Maine from Aroostook to York County to conduct these screening surveys and to um, we're making, you know, we're making a headway. Last year, I think he, many of your listeners will be aware that uh, hydrilla, again, that really serious uh, invader, was found on Damerscotter Lake, one of Maine's most t- treasured lakes, and it was found by one of our invasive plant patrollers, uh, Dick Butterfield. He had been just recently trained at one of our workshops, and he was conducting his uh, screening survey along his section of the shoreline. This very remote section of the shoreline, it's not near any of the public boat access areas where you might think might be the most vulnerable areas. And he tucked into a little cove. He saw something that registered as uh, suspicious. He checked it out in his field guide and he sent it in. Uh, you know, within a day, we had identified it as hydrilla. The next day, the VLMP and the main DEP were in the water, looking at the infestation, assessing it. The DEP got straight to work um, de- de- developing its um, rapid response plan, and we got to work uh, helping to bring in more volunteers to start checking out the rest of the lake to see how extensive uh, the infestation is. Uh, to date, I think we've now trained with the Dammer Scott Lake Watershed Association. We've trained uh, over 160 volunteers on damaskata lake who are now conducting screening surveys and uh as far as we know dick caught the pioneer colony the original colony it was early detection at its very best textbook and you know coupled with the dep's uh extremely uh professional rapid response you know we're really uh, very very proud of that scenario We've we've disaster averted so far and we're hoping uh, you know it will just continue to to improve there,
1: so great, and you have kind of um, groups all over the state um, at individual lakes, and um, I know in Hancock county, um, those are organized by the Hancock county soil and Water conservation district and and uh, they're doing a great job. Why don't you list your contact information, um, uh, Roberta, and then we're going to let you go. I'm afraid to take up another call. Go ahead.
2: Great. Um, my contact information is uh, I'll give you my email first. Mm-hmm. It's Roberta at. M, excuse me, R- Roberta at main vlmp dot org. and our phone number here at the VLMP is 783-7733. We really welcome people's calls just to get information or to learn how they can get involved, and we just do want to send out one last. Uh, uh, Kudos to the Hancock County Soil Water Conservation District and all the folks down there who are doing just a superb job. It's the uh, most extensive countywide uh, program that we have here in Maine, and uh, you know we just couldn't do this work without partners of that caliber. So we want to just thank all of them, Great. all of our volunteers in Hancock.
1: Great, and thanks you for all of your good work. Um, I I think all of us who treasure Maine's lakes and ponds um, uh, value them in their present state and don't want to see those invasive. So thanks so much for your work um, with the uh, Volunteer Lakes Monitoring Program.
2: Thanks, Ron, and thanks. Nice hearing from you, Lois. Bye bye.
1: So that was Roberta Hill of the Maine Volunteer Lakes Monitoring Program. In a few moments, we'll um, uh, pick up uh, the phone and talk with Ellie Groden of the University of Maine, and we'll get her perspectives on um, uh, European red ants. But I do be have, believe we have a phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please.
5: Um, yeah, I I wanted to um, just introduce um, sort of a, a critical component in, in the conversation of invasion biology. I was wondering if your guests are familiar with the work of David Theodoropoulos, his his book, Invasion Biology, Critique of a Pseudoscience, um, because this is a, sort of a hot button issue, um, the notion of uh, plants that come in you know, plants that come into an ecosystem and out compete uh, native plants. Um, but Theodoropoulos' basic um, thesis he kind of takes an evolutionary perspective on the movements of plants throughout the world. And, and, and his basic point is that plants are always on the move through a variety of vectors, um, both dispersal by animals and, and, and um, you know, vegetative and wind and, and the rest of it. Um, and, you know, he also makes a point that, that uh, invasive plants are sort of, symptoms of a larger problem, that that really they are indicators of disturbance. The the talk earlier was one of um, lupins along roadsides. Um, You know, a roadside is a highly disturbed area. Um, And also just that there is an argument, there's an environmental argument um, in favor of introducing certain species um, you know there there ought to be a vetting process to ensure that they that they that they don't outcompete and 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 produce monocultures like the hydrilla and stuff. I mean it's it you know there's fine lines uh, in, in but let me get back to the envirom- environmental argument is that you know we move plants all over the world and some plants are have positive ecological benefits. Lupins, for example, fix nitrogen. they're They're in the legume family and they and, and they provide a useful ecological function. Apples and stone fruits, peaches and stuff are from central um, northern Eurasia. Um, so plants are always on the move and, 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 and um, some have benefits and some are some are disruptive. Eventually, ecosystems come back into balance through ecosynthesis. And, and I just wondered if if your guests um, could comment on the work of Theodoropolis, if
1: they're familiar with it. Well, thanks for your call this morning. That's uh, um, Lois. M- may not be familiar with this author, but probably with some of the arguments.
3: Uh, it's a great argument, and and um, there are lots of theories of what's going on. We can, and and in addition to that, we can either be very proactive. On one extreme, we could just say we're not going to move anything anymore, any place. On the other end, we can say. Let's let's do whatever happens, and and things will work out. I think the the best approach is someplace in the middle of that. But the question is, where is it, and how do we how do we address this problem in a meaningful, positive, forward thinking way? that um, we can all benefit from. So let me give a couple of examples that I thought of when the caller was talking. Um, The idea that lupins are nitrogen fixers and that that's a good thing is a of value that we have in our constructed landscapes we think well what could be wrong with nitrogen nitrogen helps plants grow it's a necessary nutrient it's needed in very large amounts how could that be a negative thing and yet that's one of the ways that invasive plants can tip the balance if a if a system of plants is growing because they're able to compete in nitrogen poor soils if we improve the level of nitrogen in those soils then other plants can be competitive there and the original plants might no longer be able to be viable in that system I think a good example might be our low bush blueberries which are certainly um, grow faster with added nitrogen but when we add nitrogen to the system we also make a system that is attractive and and more easily invaded by weeds Um, many of our leguminous Plants that fix nitrogen, for example, clover, can be serious problems in natural areas where they change the soil and make it invadable by other species. Um, The idea that uh, things can move around on their own without human intervention is obvious. I, I agree with that absolutely. But I'd also say that humans are accelerating the process. We move plants around in very intentional ways. Um, and we don't always ask all of the questions before we start moving the plants. So do I think that we should only have native plants? Of course not, because I love to garden. <laughs> None of our vegetables are native to Maine. The caller mentioned uh, apples. What would, a, what would a landscape be without a crab apple, and how could, we, how could we have a life without apples in our yards and in our orchards? So absolutely, there are exotic plants that are very positive in our culture and in our environment. But there are just a very few, a very small percentage of plants and animals, both terrestrial and aquatic, that are so aggressive that when they're introduced into a new system, that they cause the system to change dramatically um one let me mention one more example because i think it's an interesting one that we we might not even think about unless unless we do read research and uh pay attention to what's going on in other places um we've long used angleworms or earthworms in fishing and earthworms, of course, as everyone knows, tunnel through the ground, and in our gardens, that's a terrific thing. They aerate the soil, they fertilize the soil, it's a it's a grand thing to have in our gardens. But when earthworms um, get out from perhaps our lakes where people fish, and they start to invade the forests, they change the soils so that our native species can't compete. They start... Uh, earthworms are decomposers. They eat duff, the layer of dead material on top of the soil, and then they tunnel in and incorporate it into the soil. Um, and that process of earthworms in our northern forests is reducing the level of duff on the top of the soil. And our native trees require that duff layer um, to protect their roots um, and and to uh uh protect the soil resource so just the introduction of that little earthworm is changing entire forests and it's it's sometimes overwhelming it's always overwhelming to think of all of these questions all at once but i think caution is an important thing and and your caller mentioned Well, what's the problem with moving things around? Of course, we need to be cautious, and that's exactly right. We need to be cautious. We need to ask the questions. Does this plant have, or animal, have the potential to become problematic in its new environment? And even with great caution, still we can make some mistakes. We're finding some plants that have been, for example, in the landscape industry for many, many years, suddenly are changing and becoming aggressive. Um, One that I think of in particular is the calorie pear, which is a popular flowering tree in landscapes, and where for many years it appeared to be behaving perfectly well in landscapes, it's now becoming a very serious problem further south of here, and as our climate changes, it will probably become problematic in Maine. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a very big, moving target that we're talking about. And
1: I don't hear you um, talking about hard and fast kinds of um, rigid kinds of things. You're talking about a precautionary approach to these things. How do you um, help um, landowners, um, whether they're large-scale owners or homeowners, um, think about these questions and, and help them understand, well, what steps could I take to lessen the dangers?
3: Oh, yes. Um, You know, I was recently on a panel of people uh, addressing the topic of invasive species, and one of the other panel members who is from Connecticut, and he gives a lot of presentations about invasive species as well, and he made the comment, well, Lois and I are always preaching to the choir. And it really made me think that oftentimes we reach people on whatever topic we're talking about because they're interested enough to show up when we give a presentation or or they're listening to the radio because this topic has has touched them in some way. It's so hard to reach everyone. Um and and I I think um as this issue becomes more obvious to people I think everyone will be paying a little more attention in one way or the other. One uh, one example is a plant that we have here in Maine. It's called Japanese knotweed or Mexican bamboo, and I can almost hear people in their living rooms groaning. <laughs> Those who have this plant on their land know what a serious invader it is. But the form of this plant that is in England is even more aggressive. And it has become so aggressive and so problematic in England that there are very large banks that will not give mortgage loans to people purchasing a home on on the property of which there is Mexican uh, knotweed, Japanese knotweed or Mexican bamboo, for which there's not a management pla- plan in place. So it's finally hitting people's pocketbooks. And I think... Whenever we have an issue, it remains kind of that issue out there until it touches us personally in some way. And perhaps economics or the beauty of nature or the value of our property, is. those are some of the issues that I think help
1: people connect to this one. Mm, Great. We'll come back to that, I hope. Um, We we do have a a phone caller uh, first. We'll take a a brief phone call, Um, question or comment, please. Uh, Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. We'll see if we can get that caller back. But uh, let's, let's go to uh, Professor Ellie Grodin, um, who's a professor of entomology at the University of Maine. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Ellie. Well, thank you. Glad you could be with us. And your specialty is not um, aquatic invaders or um, uh, plant invaders. Your specialty is insects and ants. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in, in looking at European red ants as, a, as an invader here in Maine.
6: Well, I've been interested in um, insect ecology and pestiferous ants uh, for a number of years, and I first received a call from the biologist at the Katy National Park um, with some questions regarding a species of ant that had become particularly pestiferous within the park. And in further investigations into this ant, uh, we've found that it's actually spread throughout many areas along um, particularly coastal areas of Maine but also several areas inland and since uh, it was brought to our attention we've um, developed a variety of different research programs looking at this ant and why it's been so successful uh, what impacts it's having on the ecosystem and how we might um, develop some strategies for managing it. Uh, It is a stinging ant, and so that's what uh, Mm. particularly brings it into uh, notice of um, homeowners and folks who visit areas where this ant has established.
1: So um, those of us who who, who know the ant um, know it well. Those of us who don't know the ant um, d- describe it and, and uh, talk about the stinging aspect.
6: Well, it's it's a small red ant. It's only about uh, oh an eighth to a quarter, of, three eighths of an inch, um, and it uh, they're they're very recognizable primarily by their density. Um, The name of this ant, um, the scientific name, is Myrmica rubra. It's called locally the European fire ant or the um, European red ant because unlike the fire ants in the southern part of the state that many um, listeners may be familiar with if you've traveled down to Florida or other parts of southern United States, Um, This ant does not come from South America, where our southern fire ant comes from, but this ant comes from Europe. And in particular, its uh, native range extends well up into northern Europe, into the Arctic Circle, which means that it's very well adapted to our cold climate. And matter of fact, when we first started working with it, We monitored colonies' overwintering success, and out of 30 colonies that we were tracking, 100% of them survived one of our more severe winters. So uh, they are very problematic um, in that they're well-adapted to our conditions. Uh, They have a stinger at the tip of their abdomen, and uh, the stinger is attached to venom sacs, and when they sting you, they um, pump venom into you, very similar to bees to, to what bees do, um, and it causes a. Uh, as with any stinging insect, your um, the sensitivity varies with the individual. Um, some people just get a small little red bump, other people get a quite inflamed area that can get up to five or six inches in diameter with a white welt in the middle, um, and other people have had. Um, um, more severe allergic reactions to it.
1: Mm. So taking the picnic and taking your blanket out on the on the grass uh, doesn't. It is no longer possible for some some folks. Um, and so I I can imagine they're going to say um, to you or any of us in, in this kind of work saying, okay, so what do we, we tell us what we do to get rid of it? And and I'm sure that you're you get those kinds of calls. And and are there ways to to help control um, this particular species of ant?
6: There are some ways that you can help to manage the Mm. the ants. We have, as yet, been unable to completely eradicate um, even relatively contained infestations, those being infestations that are, are contained within a few acres. Um, But uh, we have found that there are a number of things that you can do as a homeowner to reduce the problems with the ant. They are moisture-loving ants, and so they do not like exposure to um, direct sunlight. And so keeping um, lawns very well cropped uh, tend to discourage them from moving into uh, the center of lawns. Unlike the southern fire ants, they don't build large mounds that they nest in. These ants tend to nest underneath um, things. They like to nest underneath down um, woody debris in the forest. They like to nest underneath stones. They nest underneath our debris that we have around our yard. Anything from potted, you know, pots that we have stacked up behind our sheds to um, Perhaps boards and railroad ties that we put along the edge of our gardens and sometimes nice stonework that we put along the edge of our vegetable gardens provide very nice um, nesting substrates for these ants. So keeping um, areas as free of um, natural and human debris that these ants can establish nests underneath also can um, facilitate uh, keeping an area clear of the ants. Um,
1: And then I suppose um, being very careful about not moving plant material that might contain those.
6: Absolutely. And, uh,
1: and I know on Mount Desert Island that has been um, an issue, and, and, and right. f- uh, Master Gardeners or others are really trying to stay on top of that kind of issue.
6: Right, absolutely. Um, for looking at the, evi- the historical evidence for um, where this ant was intercepted uh, in shipments that were sent uh, in the uh, early 1900s to uh, different parts of the Northeast, and they were in sphagnum moss from Ireland, they were in... Pack- batches of dahlias from um, Poland and Narcissus from Holland, so they came shipped, um, many introductions of these ants came shipped um, in with organic material, um, frequently plants, and that's where they like to nest. Um, They like moist, loose soil, and that tends to be what we have in our potted plants. And we've watched them very happily move a nest from a stone wall into a potted plant um, that then could be easily transferred and given to a neighbor or a relative. uh, And you've succeeded in spreading the ants around.
1: Why don't you stay on the phone? I think we have another call, and it may relate to ants. And if it does, maybe you can help answer it. Let's go ahead with that comment or a question, please. Go ahead.
0: Good morning. This is
4: Yo in Tremont. I'm thinking about this question in broader terms, broader environmental and evolutionary terms, and I'm thinking in particular about here on Mount Desert Island, three species which I've come into contact with, the coyote, the lupin, and these European fire ants. And I'm wondering if there's really any prospect, once these invasive species become established, to Remove them from local ecosystems and return to what was the state prior to the arrival of those species
1: oh, well, that's a great question thanks thanks for calling um, you know, you know, and and that speaks to um, how things change how things evolve and and sometimes we just have to get used to the fact that that's the way it is lois what what do you think
3: I think that I, both of your comments are great um, If we looked this summer at the number of purple loosestrife that we all saw on all of our roadways. And I was shocked at the places where I saw it this summer. I've always um, known it to be a wetland invader, but it's in every culvert, along every roadside, it seems, quite far from established uh, natural wetlands, and even up the slope of culverts, not even in the damp bottom of a roadside culvert. So if, if we think of how overwhelming... It would be to try to eradicate that plant and while we're eradicating it every plant is producing new seeds and those new seeds if we have a large rainfall where there's runoff the rain carries the seed off the local site and water goes down it goes into wetlands so that it's a very difficult cycle to break Um, roberta mentioned early earlier a case of someone finding hydrilla in a lake as a very early detection and then through rapid response DEP was able to contain and eradicate it that is our best hope
1: Mm.
3: but we train people roberta trains people for lakes we've trained master gardeners and and school kids with their laptops in middle school are out looking for invasive species it's really quite hopeful it's it's one thing to train people to go out and um, report incidents of something like purple loosestrife that are quite ubiquitous and easy to spot. It's another thing to say, you know, we've got this plant that is in southern New England. It's called uh, mile-a-minute vine or tear of thumb or whatever the plants are that are, are coming towards Maine and we think they might be here. Um, some of the insects Ellie could speak to that we're on the lookout for it's kind of hard to, to have people out there monitoring for them because it's boring they don't find anything very often so it's hard to keep them at it uh, but that is our our best hope our best hope is to ask the question when we buy a plant does this have the potential to be invasive are there other plants in the same genus that are already invasive that maybe we should take another look at this one before we introduce it um, are there should I be looking at the root system of a plant and checking to make sure that there aren't any European red ants in it before I move it onto my property? It's that that monitoring and constant vigilance that are our best hope. And I think your the caller's um, suggestion that maybe we're going to live with what we have that is that's likely because. Um, We don't have plant police out there that we can just snap our fingers and call out and say, okay, eradicate this. (laughs) It's a tremendous amount of work, which means an incredible amount of cost. Billions of dollars are spent in the U.S. every year managing invasive species, and we're not really keeping up with many of them.
1: Mm. Ellie, and and your your point um, is that we probably won't eradicate the European um, red ant, but we might be able to manage it so we can use our yards.
6: Right. I think that I think that um, this the, this caller's question um, get, is similar to uh, previous caller's question in terms of looking at the philosophy. And I do think our ecosystems will survive. I guess the question that we need to ask is, what do we want them to look at? Um, certainly, look like. And and I think that um, once it, once these invaders have established, uh, it is. Um, almost impossible to eradicate them. We're really looking at how can we manage them and how can we live with them. Um, and but the other the other situation is that we do have, as Lois was referring to, a number of um, invaders that are to the south of us. Um, if they come into the state, they have the potential to have tremendous um, not perhaps the ecological impact may be. Um, may be not permanent in that the ecosystem will reach some state of balance in the future, but they'll have short-term tremendous economic impact, and particularly with some of the um, forest invaders such as the Asian longhorn beetle, the emerald ash borer, um, they're likely to um, cause tremendous damage to our forests. And so uh, it's a process of, as Lois was saying, Detecting the populations before they get established or just when they're beginning to get a foothold, that's when we have the best opportunity to try to um, manage them.
1: Ellie, if you could just um, give us some um, a website or contact information for people who are particularly interested in, in uh, the European red ant and other um, insect invaders, that would be really really helpful.
6: Well, we have, a, um, we have a website specifically for the European fire ant, which is um, through the School of Biology and Ecology at the University of Maine. Um, it's uh, sbe.umaine.edu um, slash fire ant slash research at UMaine. Great. And pretty much you can, if you just get on the University of Maine website and search the website for fire ants, you'll come up to it.
1: Great! Thanks so much for being with us um, from the University of Maine this morning.
6: My pleasure.
1: Ellie Groden, uh, professor of entomology from the University of Maine, and still in the studio with us as we begin to wrap up our um, our conversation about Maine's invasive species is Lois Berg Stack. Um, uh, Lois, uh, the climate change comes into some of this too, because as the climate changes, that means that there's new niches to to kind of move into.
3: Absolutely. And you know what, for some of us in Maine who love to garden, climate climate warming and lengthening growing season might be a good thing for mm-hmm. a little while. This summer I grew artichokes and I grew sweet potatoes in my garden. Twenty years ago I'm not sure I would have done it quite as well. So as Ellie mentioned, um, ecosystems are very flexible and responsive and life will go on, it just will be different. One uh, specifically related to global climate change that I think of is kudzu vine. Um, Your viewers have either, or your listeners have either visited the south or seen pictures of kudzu vine in action. It simply drapes over everything in a landscape. It's a nitrogen fixer. It's in the bean family. It's a highly aggressive plant. It was... um, Introduced both as an ornamental plant because, gosh, it grows so fast and covers ugly things. Um, So it it served a role, and it was also introduced as fodder for animals about in the late 1800s. It has been moving northward with global warming, and there are now a couple of patches in Connecticut and Massachusetts and Ontario. So it is not unlikely that kudzu will one day be found in Maine. And the uh, Climate Change Institute people do projections of, oh, things that we might see in the next decades. And one um, prediction that I've seen recently is that within the next 20 years or so, they're expecting to see kudzu vine established along the coast of Maine. So these problems do move. The, The world is changing, and... Uh, we'll see more invasive mm.
1: species. We, we, I think we have time for a very brief comment or question. Go ahead with your comment or question, please.
5: I'm still wondering about sending this, these lupin seeds. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes or no?
1: Okay, great. We'll get an answer to that. Thanks, Lois. You're on the spot now.
3: I am. Um, lupin seeds and plants are for sale. The fact that you would send lupin seeds is as a friend of mine says a drop in the bucket of what's out there it is a matter of personal philosophy and belief so i can't answer specifically on your behalf Um, you'll need to make a decision whether you want to be part of that moving of plants around because after all they're all out there and this doesn't make a difference or if you want to say well i don't want to be part of that um, are they invasive? My guess is that in some systems they probably are. Um, the evidence is is starting to point towards that. Um, I know that Acadia manages lupins as an invasive species. Mm. So I've I've given uh, one more wishy-washy answer All those
1: Miss Rumpheus lovers out there will just have to make up their own minds. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And and Lois, contact information for cooperative extension and looking at invasives. Do you have anything particular to to add, or should they just um, um, use their web browser and, and look for invasives and cooperative extension?
3: Well, that's one way. We do have about, I think, 22 fact sheets of invasive aquatic and terrestrial plants. If you simply Google Maine invasive plant, you'll find our fact sheets right off the... Our our website is a little hard to navigate for finding individual sheets, but that's an easy way to find them.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the 2nd and 4th Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests this morning. Lois Bergstack of the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, Ellie Groden, a professor of entomology at the University of Maine, and Roberta Hill of the Maine Volunteer Lakes Monitoring Program. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns. Wishing you a good morning.